Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of 1% Better, the uh, original 1% Better, as I was telling my guest before just uh, we recorded. There's about 20 of them out there now, um, but this is obviously the, the first and most important one um so thanks uh, for listening this week's podcast is with a lady called heather monroe and she is an integrative psychotherapist and founder of monroe wellness um and i'm really excited to talk to heather tonight uh, about many different topics but one specifically i guess would be rela- relational trauma as kind of a focus for you heather welcome to the podcast by the way hi nice to be here thank you for having me no, we're delighted to have you on the show. Um, so there's there's lots of stuff we want to cover, um, and we can go in lots of different directions here. As the name is one percent better, I, I really want to try and extract some insights and useful how tos potentially for listeners that uh, they can put into practice and make themselves um, that little bit better if possible. But before we get to that, I want to you know get to know you a little bit better, share your story, share a bit about your background, and um, so. The floor or mic is yours. I'd love to hear a little bit about your uh, yeah your background and how you got to where you got to. Oh, it's a question. Um, it's a wide <laughs> so, open one. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, um, I in a different life, I was in the fashion industry and doing PR and kind of really struggling with my own uh, mental health uh, and substance use issues and. Um, and so then I, I went and I, um, I got clean and I got treated for my mental health disorder uh, disorders as well. And I realized that I wanted to help people in a meaningful way. Um, so I went and got my master's and I've been in the field um, of mental health for the last almost 15, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, what, why I specialize in trauma is because I realized in my own journey, but also in helping hundreds and hundreds of people in, um, in institutions and in private practice and all different settings that trauma and pain or injury was the underpinning of almost every mental health disorder that I was treating. Um, and especially with addiction. So, you know, that whole question of um, why the addiction or why the mental health disorder is more in my eyes, not why the mental health disorder, but why the pain. Okay. Very interesting. And can I take a little bit just to step back as well? I like talking to my guests around turning points and and points at which you realized that kind of moment of clarity or a point where you said you got, you got to make a change here. What, what was the kind of lead up to that? And can you maybe talk to me a little bit about th- that one significant change? So I, I started having mental health issues, I think around probably 12. Um, and then when I found substances, it was like, it was like the answer to all my problems. It was like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I'm smart enough and I'm, and I'm funny and I'm pretty and all these like insecurities I had just kind of went away. Mm-hmm. And so just like I could never blame any of my clients for using drugs, I can't really blame myself either. It worked until it didn't work. And when it didn't work, it really didn't work. And, um, and so I got to a place after 11 years in active addiction and with my mental health disorders exacer- exacerbating because of the addiction, um, I got to a place where I saw my life, I saw the trajectory of my life. And I I said to myself, I'm either going to wake up when I'm 35 years old, I'm going to have two kids with the boyfriend I had at the time in college. And I'm going to wake up and say, where did my life go? Because in addiction, it's like, it's like your life goes on pause emotionally, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to wake up and say, where did my life go? Or, um, I can do this other thing that I'm terrified of, but I could at least try because the life that I see for myself is a pretty miserable one. And that moment or when you kind of were able to project forward, do you think you have to have a lot of 
almost self-awareness or just awareness about what what is going on around you to 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 make that decision to to really you know obviously need courage i suppose but was it something you could have made on your own did you need support how, how did you manage to, to kind of make those first steps you know i talk about this a lot with clients but everybody has protective factors built into themselves and and we get those from childhood just as we get injuries from childhood and i think that there were certain lessons that my parents instilled in me that created resiliency and created a sense of um, grit uh, in my personality. Um, and I also came from a family that was not BSing me. They were looking at the problem, pointing at me and saying, we will say no to you until you ask the right question. And so because there was not too much enabling going on, because it was constant, the fingers were constantly being pointed back at me, which allowed me to, um, well, self-destruct in a much more isolating environment, but also to really take a hard look at me instead of pointing the fingers at everybody else, as well as the sense that I knew if I asked the right questions, I would have the support of the people that were turning their back on me in the moment. Mm, sounded like so that they were quite aware of what you were going through and weren't, as you said, not taking the BS. And I'm interested just to say, what what was the point this was that brought them into the equation that really made you change then? Because as you said, you were doing it for a number of years. Were they putting it up, up with it for that period of time? You know, it was interesting, actually, looking back at it, it was actually the point where I felt like my family had given up on okay. me. It was the point where it was kind of like they wrote me off as, well, Heather's just crazy. You know, Heather just has real big issues with drugs and mental health. And she's just that she's just going to be like that forever. And there was something about... um there was something about people not believing in me that like I was the only one left to believe in myself. And this is the way I operate in life. If someone tells me I can't do something, watch out because I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with a lot of force. And so it almost, there was a strange sense of I'll show you. Yeah, no, I think there's there's something that's triggering off for me there, I suppose, in, in a way, and from talking to other guests about similar topics, it, it seems the ones that are pushed into a corner, I don't know if that's the right term, but as you said, isolated, left on your own, and nobody there to coddle you anymore, you know, mm-hmm. was, was kind of really a, a changing point for, for you. So so that that's really interesting. Just on the mental health piece, and I've talked to people in the past where they were taking drugs and you know self-medicating with with mental health issues as well that they had been incorrectly diagnosed what their mental health issues were was that ever anything for you or was it always you know accurate to to what 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 it actually was yeah I think that um I was I think I always knew that I was depressed when I, when it first started coming on around 12, like it was very apparent to me that I felt hopeless and helpless a lot of the time. And then I had some, a couple of sexual traumas that really just emphasized that, um, that helplessness and hopelessness and accelerated the drug use. So I think that I always knew, I always knew that I, that I, that I battled with depression. Um, when I went to rehab, I was diagnosed with a personality disorder, a possible personality disorder, which turns out I didn't have, but addiction a lot of the time mimics personality disorders because there's such a chaos to the people, to, to people with substance use disorders. And there's such a exaggeration of emotions and, that I don't like for my clients with substance use disorders, I do not ever diagnose them with a personality disorder until they have been clean for quite some time. That's really interesting. I was listening to a podcast in the last couple of days with Louis Thoreau. You know Louis Thoreau. The- oh, I, I thought I've heard of that name. Yeah, he's a he's a documentarian, I guess, for BBC, and he was interviewing Sia, the singer. Uh, you probably heard of Sia. Yeah. And yeah. and talking through her 
mental health issues and traumas and she had she has complex PTSD I think is what she termed it as but she was getting misdiagnosed all the way through her life for bipolar and all other things borderline and yeah all that stuff yeah and until I guess until you got the right diagnosis you can't get the right treatment so so I suppose that was one of the reasons that that triggered for me so when you started to move forward and started to you know to show people that you were um, on the right path can you think about and maybe look back on any early um, learnings or or work you did on yourself to kind of move you in that the right direction or and that even brings me on to the next question of how as you started to develop your new career and a focus around trauma was there any practices or, or tools that you found really useful on yourself that you were able to use for others? When we look at people with addiction issues or people with depression issues, we think because the behaviors are the same, we think, well, then treatment has to be the same, right? Like if the, especially with the behaviors around addic- around addiction, but what I found in my own healing and with everyone else that I treat around their healing is that, um, the process of healing is different for every single person. And that's, I mean, the the human beings minds are so complex and the history behind people's depression or addiction is different for every single person. So just as the history that created the mental illness is different. So is the healing that will create the wellness. Um, So for myself, the first thing that, Uh, the first component of my healing was responsibility to other people. So I got clean and three days later I entered, I entered grad school and I was placed um, in Harlem uh, working with ex felons. uh, So Micah clients, so mentally ill, chemically addicted clients Mm -hmm. uh, who were um, who were felons who were coming out of halfway houses out of jail And I, they expected me to show up every week and do a group with them and have them, you know, open checking accounts. So the first thing that helped me was having to be responsible for other people and having to show up. Mm -hmm. Um, And that mattered because from the time I was little, I always knew I wanted to help people. And so there was something about the responsibility around helping someone else, like their well-being was dependent on me. And that I immediately took seriously, especially because I really wanted to stay clean too. So I used that and leaned on that. Um, the other thing for me was awareness. So my one of the pillars of healing for me is awareness. I think that awareness is the foundation of all healing. Mm -hmm. We need to start with awareness. So where I found the first of my awareness was through a a 12 step program where I went through steps, which really for me were just steps around figuring out myself and why I do the things I do. It's very, when you break down the steps on a psychological level, it really makes sense. And a lot of it is cognitive behavioral therapy based and radical acceptance and a lot of things that's, um, that in clinical psychology are applied. Mm-hmm. So that really helped, but that only got me so far. And I remember feeling my second year in my own recovery kind of crazy because I was, I put down the drugs, but I was picking up every other thing I could find. So I was picking up food. I was picking up men or relationships. I was just trying to still get out of myself. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until um, a really horrible uh, relationship that I got out of, a toxic relationship, where I hit another bottom of mental health. And in that bottom where I was clean, but I was, I was really, I still had a, I was really depressed, really, really depressed. Um, and when I hit that bottom, um, I started, uh, seeking things, um, that were more experiential to heal, to help heal. It was really what I would have to say is meditation was the biggest, the biggest game changer for me. And I now treat my depression. I've, I haven't been on medication for 10 years. I treat my, I treat my depression with 
daily meditation. And I have for 10 years. And all the research shows that meditation actually, it doesn't just change the brain, but it, it can be just as or more effective than medications with no side effects. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided to believe in the science and go for it. And, um, and it's worked for me and it's changed my life. Mm-hmm. No, very much in line with where, you know what I'm thinking and and what I'm feeling over the last number of years as well. Just to bring it back to the awareness piece and the, the twelve steps, I think I totally agree. Self awareness and developing that is foundational. And once you can you can get that layer in, it, it's easier to kind of build on on top of that. When you were doing that work, um, in in the in the first kind of stage of recovery, if you want to call it that. Um, it was mainly about self-awareness. Was there any work you did around kind of self-control or self-management? I'm thinking, you know, the typical emotional intelligence framework and self-control or self-management, self-regulation is kind of the next layer on top. Were you doing anything to kind of to, to try and build on that self-awareness at that time or was that still alien? It, that was alien. I think that was the missing piece. And I always tell people who kind of say about therapy, I think that this is one of the things that, a lot of therapy can miss. And I, I actually think the field is getting, is now getting much more robust in the way that we help people heal. But a lot of therapy, when I started grad school, so 15 years ago, was just like awareness, awareness. And then it kind of stopped. And you would hear people be like, well, I've been in therapy for five years and I'm aware of why I do what I do, but like I'm still doing what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that to be like the first step is awareness. But until until we add a behavior that is going to take the place of the negative behavior or add a coping skill that's going to take the place of the negative coping skill, we are going to continue to let our emotions run the show. And so it wasn't until two years later when I found that coping skill of meditation, when I learned how to slow my mind down and, and, and question my thoughts and realize, oh, thoughts aren't facts, feelings aren't facts. And then as I went deeper into body work, um, like Peter, Peter Levine's somatic experiencing uh, work, where you release trauma out through the body, um, and I was trained in that work as well, that I realized awareness is great. And also if we allow our minds to be our master, even in awareness, we're gonna be in trouble. And the body holds so much intelligence and it's actually the key to our healing because if we can control, if we can um, be aware enough where we realize that we're feeling anxiety in our body or we realize we're feeling depression in our body uh, before our mind catches up to it to a certain extent or use our body as cues of where our mind is going, then there are ways that we can activate the parasympathetic nervous system, that we can calm our mind and calm our bodies down and be able to actually like release trauma through it that's going to help us in the long run around emotional regulation better than talk therapy, just talk therapy can. Mm. So the awareness piece is kind of almost passive and the, um, the behavioral element, you're a bit more active than when you're doing meditation, you're active acting on that. Now you're aware, but now you're trying to move in the right direction with, with those behaviors. Would that, that be kind of a good way of describing it a little bit? Yeah. Now you're aware. So what do you do with that awareness when you're triggered? How do you not go into trauma reaction and go into a rage when you're feeling out of, you know, out Mm -hmm. of sorts? So talk to me a little bit more about Peter Levine's somatic experience and how that works, right? So we're, we're at the point where, and, you know, thankfully, a lot of a lot, a lot more people these days are practicing meditation um and are struggling with it i know you know from talking to a lot of people they give up very quickly they just don't don't feel they're making any progress with it i talk to people about the fact that they feel sometimes they're not making progress is actually making progress because they can start noticing um them them getting distracted more and more so so maybe if you can talk talk me through kind of a simple approach approach that works for you that you recommend to your clients to kind of move from meditation and maybe talk about the the Peter Levine somatic experience what what's involved in that 
Yeah. So when we experience trauma or injury, um, let's say that we experienced um, a childhood that was very disruptive. Uh, Let's say mom or dad had a substance use disorder or a mental health issue. They were unpredictable. And so our nervous system starts getting hijacked. We, we start getting wired towards chaos and towards um, feelings of abandonment and in uncertainty. And we kind of look at relationships through that lens. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, that is a, a symptom of relational trauma. And it, 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 it's also a symptom of being ungrounded, like not feeling safe in our own bodies because we didn't feel safe around the people that we were supposed to feel the most safe with. So if someone's not teaching us how to feel safe in our own bodies, how, where, where the heck do we learn that from? Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Peter's work and a lot of the work that I do with my clients is I try and see where their window of tolerance is. So everybody has a window of tolerance around emotional upheaval or pain, emotional pain. Some people's is really little, small, and some are really big. You know, some it's like incredible emotional, uh, emotional tolerance. So with people whose emotional tolerance window is small, you want to do a lot of work around breath, around grounding them. Um, if they, so for instance, an exercise I'll do with somebody who has had a lot of trauma and doesn't feel safe in their body. Um, I will ask them to just sit still and to kind of let their eyes wander around the room back and forth, you know, just, just allow yourself to orient. It's like orienting yourself around the room. And that brings us a, a sense of presence just there and then to like the present moment. And then I can ask that person um, if they don't feel comfortable closing their eyes to kind of just let their, let their eye, eye gaze just rest gently on a point in the floor um, and ask them if there's anywhere in their body that they feel anchored, like anywhere in their body. So some people who have anxiety, I won't go to the breath because the breath can actually trigger more anxiety, which triggers a panic attack. So with them, I'll say, what about your knees, You know, your ankles, your feet on the ground? Is there some place? And people will come, will really um, find some resourcefulness within their own bodies as to like, you know... Um, my wrists, that for some reason, that's where I feel like there's an anchor there. There's a safety there. Mm -hmm. And then we just concentrate on that place. So we want to find out like where the client's internal resources are. And if it's not in their body, which a lot with, with high, with complex PTSD, it's, it's a lot of the time not even in the body, then it's like, what about looking outside? What about hearing the birds or hearing, um, feeling cold air on your skin. It could be an outside source. And then we work on going internal with them. Mm. It's interesting because I, I would have done exercises where you're almost asked to do the opposite in a way, to look for the part where you're holding most tight as opposed to feeling most anchored. And then you can kind of work at releasing that. But to your point, that in itself could have a negative trigger uh, because there's a lot of tension and it could explode <laughs> in, in a metaphorical yes. way, right? So. Yeah. And what happens is, is that when people start feeling more grounded in their body, what will happen is we can go to that tightness. So let's say I'm, someone's feeling really tight in their chest and they go there and I start noticing their breathing's getting more shallow. Well, then I don't stay there. I actually go back to a grounding exercise because we want to make their window of tolerance go up. We want to make that window a larger window. So it's not about pushing people into the tension. It's actually about noticing the tension and then coming away from it and then tapping in and so that they notice that looking at the tension isn't as scary as it feels. Mm -hmm. Mm, Makes sense. The window of tolerance you've mentioned a couple of times, just a question on can you how do you diagnose somebody's window of tolerance or uh, identify that in, in them? Is that a, 
you know, a series of questions? Do you just know by looking at somebody a bit of both? So I can, um, there can be questions for sure. I, I know by a lot of the first session, I'm looking at their breathing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking at someone's breathing as they're talking about their childhood, if their chest is going up or down, if it's shallow. Also looking at their color pigmentation, um, what they're doing with their hands. So but this is how you know. If you go above your window of tolerance, that's usually when your heart starts beating really fast, when you want to run (laughs) or escape. Um, So it's when your sympathetic nervous system has gone and your fight or flight kind of goes into play. And so when that happens, you know that you are above your window of tolerance. When someone goes below their window of tolerance, they tend to disassociate. So that's when you have um, your parasympathetic nervous system, this nervous system that's responsible for homeostasis and bringing us back to calm. It's called blunted. It it gets blunted. And then we go below and we can tend to disassociate, have really shallow breathing. And at the extreme, we can end up fainting Mm -hmm. um, because that's going into your freeze response. So if I see that, that someone's talking about something really painful and they just stop, their eyes kind of wander off and I can tell they're getting spacey and I'll ask them, are you, what's going on right now in your body? And they'll say, I just don't feel like I'm here. And then we'll do grounding exercises to bring them back to the present moment. Cause I'll know that they've gone below their window of tolerance. Mm, no, that makes, makes sense. One question I, I was thinking through when you were talking about it, um, relating to that trauma, is it typically that trauma would be developed or, or occur when, when you're in a youthful stage or is there certain ages like that you're growing up that it's more likely, you mentioned if your parents were um, addicts or, or, or whatever, is it between the ages of whatever, five and 12 that you're at your most susceptible to a lot of that? Does it diminish a little bit as you get older do you build up a natural tolerance to to that or so we we know that um adults who let's say did not have a lot of injury within the childhood um actually can get past an acute trauma without it changing their personality structure quite well so let's say you can you you had a mother and father who were very attuned to your emotions growing up. You have a secure attachment system, and then you get in a car accident when you're when you're 21, or there's a sexual assault that happens when you're 21. If you are tr- if you treat that, um, if you can have that treated, EMDR, any sort of trauma treatment, and be able to. Um, and be able to uh, get any post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms that you were feeling from that acute trauma, kind of be able to treat that and heal that, you are in much better shape uh, than if you came from a really chaotic family or can't, you know, there's two types of relational trauma. There's the obvious relational trauma, the covert, or, and then there's the, there's the overt. And then there's the less obvious, the covert relational trauma where, Dad was a workaholic. Mom just wasn't attuned because she felt so overwhelmed all the time. She was really young, let's say, when she had her kids and she was dealing with her own anxiety and own mental health issues and so couldn't really be there emotionally for her kids. So those kids might have grown up with an insecure attachment system. They're going to be a lot less resilient if they get in a car accident or there's a sexual trauma um, than if they came from a securely attached base. So to answer your question in short, absolutely, that attachment in early childhood, and we know that zero to three are some of the most important years of developing attachment in humans, young humans. So zero to three, but also I would say anything leading up to, um, really, I think it goes up to 18, but I would say that zero to 12 before all the hormones start kicking in early childhood development is the most important mm-hmm. pre-verbal just verbal um to through middle school mm-hmm. and if you we, we have a two-year-old right so he's uh 
you know, he's a normal two-year-old, I would imagine. But is there <laughs> recommendations in the line of work you have with, with, with kids up to that age of 12 that you could be um, practicing with them, teaching yes. them, training them? Because I, I believe firmly that the, like, the, the competencies around self-awareness, self-control should be something that is taught to, to kids of all ages, right? Because we come out of school with a rational brain, but not a very emotional connection yeah. to it. So um, what are the things that are powerful practices that, you know, parents could, could potentially, you know, do with their kids? Oh, uh, yeah, I love this question. So with all the people that I've treated throughout um, my career, the biggest um, indicator of feelings of pain in childhood, and we're not going to do this perfectly as parents. I'm I'm not a perfect parent either. And I've got a boy who's three and a little girl who's about to turn two. Um, so we're not going to do any of this perf- perfectly. However, the biggest indicator of pain in childhood that I have heard from hundreds of people now um, has to do with not feeling seen by their parents and feeling dismissed emotionally by their parents. Um, Also not knowing because their parents didn't know how nobody showed them how to feel Mm -hmm. pass and that it's okay to feel uncomfortable things. And how do we deal with uncomfortable feelings? So one thing that I um, recommend for parents with young children like yourself um, is so the best, the first way is to teach a child how to kind of wrap their head around a feeling is by giving them visualizations. So for instance, um, let's say your two-year-old doesn't get what he wants, right? So he's angry Mm -hmm. and you see that he's throwing a tantrum. He's really mad. And you say, you reflect that to him. I see you're really angry that you're having a big emotion right now. Can you tell me what color is it? Mm -hmm. It's brown. (laughs) Can you tell me what, is there a shape to it? Does it have a shape? My little boy will say like, it's a triangle. Okay. And how big is the triangle really big right now? Yeah, it's really big, mom. (laughs) This is like literally what I do with my kid all the time. And then I say to him, okay, well, I'm going to wait with you until the triangle gets smaller. And you just tell me when it gets smaller. And our job as parents is to tolerate the silence. It's to tolerate holding that feeling, knowing that your, that your kid is suffering in that moment and breathing ourselves through it. And then asking them after a long pause, is it any smaller? Mm. No, it's still big. Okay, that's okay. You know, so your our kids take cues from us around feelings. Like, is it okay to be mad? Can mom or dad tolerate that I'm angry and that it's not going away as fast as they might want it to? Mm, makes a lot of sense because and just what's triggering again there is if I think some of the stuff that we've learned or been taught is there's a tantrum and you take the car away or the toy away rapidly and change the the focus and just have them to, to look at something else but in a way you're 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 hiding you're running away from the emotion effectively then right and that is something we probably do as we gr- grow older you know you're blo- bottling it up or avoiding it you don't want to feel the pain don't want to sit with the pain don't accept it um which makes total sense to what you were saying so just sitting with it um and i know through coaching and the, the work of you know when you're having one-to-one coaching sessions it, with adults the hardest part is leaving that silence for a period of time you got to develop that not to jump in to try and fill the void so gosh yeah completely and i would also say that um another thing that that parents can can do make the mistake of um and this is again an attachment an attachment uh, style parenting of parenting is um is when your kid does something and they're angry, like they hit their sister because they're really angry. In that moment to lecture that child, they are in their reptile brain. They're in their emotions, they're in their feelings. They're not going to hear what you say. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, it might just exacerbate the feeling and then make them feel shame. So now they've got anger and then they got a little bit of shame in there. So you actually like wait till the feeling goes away and then you address it later. 
with the kid when they're able to be in their upstairs brain. You know, the one that's a little bit more rational. It's the most developed part of our brain, you know, in recent history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes makes lots of sense. So, so that, like when a kid, also when a kid falls or you tell them not to do something and they do it and they hurt themselves, the first, like our first reaction is to be like, I told you not to do that. But that's shaming, right? It, the first reaction should just be dealing with the emotion oh, that must have hurt, that looked like it hurt, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And then talking after they've calmed down, like, that looked scary, what happened? Mm -hmm. What do mm. you think we should do next time? So it's just that pausing. Mm. No, great, great lesson for me on that one. So I've, I've learned something useful. Definitely there, I'm sure lots of parents that listen have as well. Um, so it's obviously not just with kids, we talk about the relationship but with trauma, other ages all through you you probably you you look at the entire lifespan i would imagine talk to me about some of the other areas you focus on in your work around i think transpersonal coaching or was it um not transpersonal coaching but uh, transformative coaching processes or can you maybe elaborate on some of the other work you do um so the the other well it's, it's all kind of within the healing process for people but i talk a lot about um changing the brain, <clears throat> how there's so much research now um, around, around how what the mind rests on, the brain becomes. It's undeniable. Like we have a whole now we, positive psychology is an entire section at UPenn about, you know, teaching. So we, we, we focus so much in psychology about all the bad mm -hmm. feelings, you know, so sadness and da, da. And then someone came up with the idea and said, well, what about the good feelings? What, how do the good feelings change? If the bad feelings change the brain, can the good feelings change the brain too? Mm -hmm. And so I started doing a deep dive into the research around, <clears throat> around the um, neuroscience around emotions and especially emotions like gratitude mm. and affirmations and how there's real science that backs this up that, um, having an affirmation as woo woo and kind of like, you know, roll the eyes, uh, as it can sound sometimes there's real science now that shows us that when we, when we, um, have a daily affirmation practice, we can actually change our thoughts and change the way our brain, um, our, our belief system just through those affirmations. And when you think about it, we already have affirmations all the time throughout our throughout our day. They can just skew a little negative, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So one of the big things that I teach people um, in courses that I do and webinars, uh, as well as in individual therapy, is how what's the most potent practices to in, in what are the most potent practices and applications of those practices to change our brain and to stop looking at our life through the lens of a painful past, clear that lens so that we can create our own future. Because when we create our future through the past, which most of us do, our future becomes incredibly predictable. Mm -hmm. And so helping people lead extraordinary lives through clearing out all that all that stuff that happened and doesn't need to continue happening anymore mm -hmm. yeah i'm going to ask you to give maybe some examples around the the affirmations i'm a big believer in gratitude i'm irish as you know and it, it's still kind of uh you know practicing gratitude and you know it, it just doesn't sit right with an awful lot of people that maybe irish or lots of parts of the world it seems to your point a bit woo woo or a bit just a bit fluffy um and i've always thought about you know catholics and going to mass and saying prayers and and you know repeating prayers over and over like in a way to me that's affirmations right and, and people get an awful lot of positive out of that because they're they're in mantras almost and they are saying stuff that's changing their belief system in a way or developing or embedding a belief system in, into their brain and feel good after it. And, you know, they may say that's, oh, that's God or that's Jesus making you feel good, but it's probably more likely just the neurotransmitters in your brain kind of making you feel a little bit better, right? So, and, and now we, we know a bit more about that. So what are the ones, you know, what, what are the 
affirmations you would recommend i'm sure they're very personal to everybody but just ones that could be useful and how quickly should somebody start to see something positive out of it because you know giving up after a week of saying you know i have a great life and i'm so lucky three times a day you know people just lose patience like they sometimes do with meditation Completely. So how I explain affirmations, meditation, gratitude practices, if a pill, an antidepressant takes six to eight weeks to kick in, then we need to allot the same amount of time for our brains for for these practices to kick in as well. So I say eight weeks. And all the research around gratitude shows that it can actually work much faster than that. Um, But lasting effects um, are for months after a six-week gratitude practice. The other thing about gratitude practice um, or any positive practice that you're going to have to amplify the effects and to really feel the effects. I had a gratitude practice for almost a year, and I just had this gratitude journal, and I would write down three things I was grateful for. And it took me 2.5, 2.5 seconds and it didn't really make a difference. Like it just didn't make that big of a difference. And what I realized um, in my own personal, so something happened to me in the beginning of COVID where I needed to tweak my meditation practice. It wasn't working anymore because I was dealing with anxiety all of a sudden with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I got in my meditation when it wasn't working anymore was gratitude. And I was like, gratitude, okay, show me, you know? So um, so I started saying things I, I was grateful for and like nothing was happening. My heart was still beating really fast. But then all of a sudden something clicked and I started probably because my eyes were closed and I was in a meditative state. But I said, I'm, th- I, you know, I'm grateful for my daughter. And I would see in my mind her, her face smiling up at me. And then I'm grateful for my son. And I would see myself playing with him outside. So a lot of people miss out on the visualization that when you say that you're grateful for something, you have to visualize like what that is, why you're grateful for it, and how it makes you feel. And when we do, when we combine those three factors, something happens in our bodies. We have oxytocin release, which is the bonding agent and makes us feel connected to those, to that person we just said we're grateful for. So we automatically feel, feel bonded to them, even if we're in COVID and totally isolated. Um, it amplifies. So gratitude amplifies feelings of, of, um, of joy and peace and harmony and it connects and it rescues us from more negative feelings. The interesting thing about gratitude though, is that it doesn't excuse us from negative feelings. It's not one of those feelings that will allow us to not feel pain. It just allows us to feel so many other wonderful emotions and to look at pain in a different light. So we still might have pain in our lives, but if we have a great, a grateful trait in our personalities because we've cultivated a daily um, gratitude practice, we look at pain and challenges a lot differently. We're able to see the forest through the trees. Mm. Mm. No, definitely. It seems like, and I wrote down here why, what, and how as kind of things that we should be doing. And I think you've, you've nailed it there with, with gratitude, why you're grateful, what you're grateful for and how I suppose how you're, expressing it or how you're feeling it and to your point of scribbling those three things down every day i think it we sometimes add that extra practice onto our task list to say well i gotta do this every day it's it's more you you know you have to want to do it as opposed to have to do it right yeah completely and i'll say that at the beginning of this pandemic because that gratitude practice became so profound. Like it, it literally took my anxiety away, which was a profound thing for me. Um, but I also realized that I had to catch my, my thoughts. So I had to kind, kind of become a spy on my thoughts. Like when was I slipping back into anxiety? And, and so what I would do is become more aware of my body. Like, so whenever I started feeling anxious again, I knew my thoughts were slipping into doom, doomsday kind of thoughts. So what I did was I started a gratitude, a gratitude circle with my family during COVID. And every day, this has now gone on every single day for eight months, we get on Zoom at 1230. And for 
15 minutes, we pick a topic and we go around and say why we're grateful for that specific topic. Mm. And I will say that that gratitude circle has seen us through a terrible death, a birth, cancer, surgery. It has healed old wounds in the family that I've never, that we didn't just didn't think was going to happen. And it's changed people's lives. Mm. Yeah. And it's sometimes the simplest things people think because it's not hard, it shouldn't be of value, right? There's this idea in our minds that we have to make things really hard because if it's not hard, we're not going to get some good out of it potentially. But if it's simple, um, showing up every day is probably the hard part, but just putting the effort in. Um, and interesting, if you do that every day, have you ever got to the point where you've ran out of a topic to be grateful for? Or is it always easy to for something to be em- emerging for that? Well, what's interesting is so uh, we... I mean, it's been eight months now, right? So we've definitely gone over more topics. However, someone came up with a series and some of us are, um, some of my family are Catholic and they came up with like the 12 fruits of, of God. And so it was like prudence, patience. And so we did that whole series. Mm. And then another um, family member was a practicing Buddhist and she did the eight noble truths. And so we just did, we just did gratitude for correct concentration, correct mindfulness. So what we found is like there's all these things that we can be grateful for in these series um, in whatever religions people believe that kind of bring us all together. Uh, yeah. Mm, interesting stuff. So I'm, I'm coming near the end. Um, just to, we mentioned we managed to get to about 35 minutes without mentioning COVID, which is probably a good uh, a good uh, result. But how has COVID changed the work you do? How, how how more difficult, how more easy in some ways? Obviously, I probably have to do a lot more over, over Zoom and that. But just interested in your experience through COVID, some things you've taken out of it positively. Well, I'm a pretty fierce introvert. So COVID for me has been... <laughs> Has been a breeze. Me too. As I just, yeah. I mean, I'm thriving. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I, like I don't know my what everybody's given out about. Like, I think this is like this is kind of uh, you know like a holiday <laughs> for us. So <laughs> totally, <laughs> this is amazing. I don't have to hang out with anyone. Yeah. Um, so on that sense, I haven't been hit hard <laughs> with COVID as as much as extroverts have. Yeah. Um, but it has. Um, well, I have to say that I really um, started to do more applications around neuroscience, changing brain pathways and things like that with my clients. So a lot more mindfulness um, in the times of COVID because people don't feel grounded and people don't feel like the internal resources um, are really challenging because we are a culture in America of external. It's all about the external. So then what do we do when the external is crumbled all around us? You know, paradigms and structures and all those kind of things. Um, so the journey with clients has been more intense for them around uh, mindfulness work. Mm-hmm. And maybe just one last one. And in my work, I, I write a lot about relationships between employees right team teamwork team bonding and how you know how how challenging that has been over the last number of months for for covid um it, well while it's been covid but is there anything you uh, you know give advice to your clients on that maybe they bring into their work life as well that that makes their connections better or the relationships better as a result um yes so i i think that a lot of us um, play out our relational issues within the workspace anyways. You know, it's not like we leave our emotional baggage at the door of work. Um, so people have found that the more they become practiced in a mindfulness um, practice, whether it's gratitude or meditation or mantra work or something that just grounds them, the easier those relationships have become, like less things bother them. Whereas before that, everything bothered them because everyone's kind of in trauma reaction right now, high stress. So it's all about divisiveness and the other versus us and things like that. Hmm. 
Yeah, no, definitely sounds like a, a good um, good example. I can I can relate to it for sure as well. Um, Heather, that was fascinating. Fifty minutes we flew through a lot of good stuff there. Thanks so much for sharing. It's great to know that uh, I have a, another introvert on the other side of the camera here we could talk about this stuff forever we don't want to talk about the 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 um the usual stuff that the chit chat that extroverts are good at you know we leave that leave leave that to the end sort of stuff we'll talk about that off off air but um how can folks find out more about you heather obviously when i put this out i'll put links out you mentioned uh you do webinars as well so maybe share some of that stuff yeah i give um at least one free webinar a month and you can just do Sign up for my newsletter at www.monroewellness.com. And you can also um, follow me on Instagram through Monroe Wellness. Uh, but you're uh, on my website. You'll find everything you need to know about me and what I'm doing, upcoming courses, upcoming webinars. And uh, I also have a lot of um, writings that I put up and send out. Very good. Sounds great. I'll um I'll send those links on with the the notes with the show. Uh, yeah, it was great chatting with you. Definitely stay in touch. We could probably talk another time um on other topics. Um, and I look forward to sharing this with uh, those that listen. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Hey, folks! Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. And it will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.